You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. That is actually a true story. That actually did happen. I did have a 60th birthday party, which um, Heather told me... Without a question, I was going to have. I'm not really that kind of a person, to be honest. But she said, no, you're going to have a party. So I did. And I thought, what kind of party do I want? <laughs> if it's my party, then, <laughs> what do I want to happen? At m- how do you celebrate my life? And I thought, you cannot understand who I am if you don't have any preaching from the Bible. That's what I decided. And I thought, well, all the guests will just have to endure that. They've come to... <laughs> <laughs> They did, they did. They endured it with a mixture of responses. Um, but I, I thought, well, you come to celebrate my life, and this is, this is like right in the middle of my life, so that's what we're going to do. And it was a bit different, but there we are. Um, and Alan, thank you. How do you know you've got the church? This is the question we're asking. How do you know you've got the church? And I, I, what would it be like if York City Church was 10 times bigger than it is right now. A headache. (laughs) It will be a massive headache for quite a lot of people, particularly the catering people (laughs) and the children people. I mean, that's not a kid's work. That's a school, isn't it? But uh, So you'll have to up your game a bit. But um, just think about that for a minute. What, What would the church be like? There was like 10 times the number of people here. Um, and of course some things would have to change the way things happen in the church would have to change because of scale but what it's like on the inside still remains the same that's the point isn't it still remains the same it's not what it says on the outside that matters it's not the scale of the thing that matters it's the reality of what's inside that matters and we saw yesterday what how do you know you've got church because Jesus came How do you know you've got church? Because you can tell from the stories that are told that this church is a work of God. That Jesus has come to you. Jesus has saved you. Jesus has gathered you. Jesus has built you. Jesus is sustaining you. That Jesus came. That Jesus stood. How do you know you've got church? Because Jesus is preeminent in everything through the agency of humility in everyone. And thirdly, Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke the peace blessing repeatedly. How do you know you've got church? When people live together under the peace of God, where we're not judgmental, we're not driven, we're not performance-orientated, we're not living in shame and in guilt, but in freedom and our identity in Christ, we receive the peace from God and we give the peace to one another, freely sharing that with each other in our community life. So that was yesterday. Here's today. Well, actually, here's the summary of yesterday. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Let's note as we go by that the obedience and the sufferings of Christ are in full view 
in the new creation resurrected Jesus. He showed them his hands and his side. Yes, Jesus is glorified. He's raised to eternal life. He has a new creation body fit for eternity that will never decay. But the sufferings that so clearly marked his crucifixion in his old creation body have been carried through and are on full display. His sufferings have become part of his glory and are visible in his new creation eternal body. They are part of the glory. They are part of the victory. Jesus showed them his hands and his side. Now this is a reference back into chapter 19. When Jesus is on the cross and the soldiers come to check that he's dead, instead of breaking the legs, which would cause death, because on the cross the only way you can breathe is to pull yourself up on the nails and gasp a breath. So breaking the legs causes the death. But instead of breaking the legs in Jesus, because they saw he was already dead, they check the reality of his death by piercing his chest cavity with a spear. 19 verse 33, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out of it. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another passage of scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. And the scripture there, they'll look on the one they have pierced, is from the prophet Zechariah. You can read about it in chapter 12 of his book. Zechariah sees that God will come to God's people. He sees that God will defeat all God's enemies and save God's people. And that when that happens, grace will be poured out upon God's people and they will see the God who was pierced. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And Zechariah goes on to promise that this piercing will open up the fountain of God's grace. Zechariah 13 verse 1, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and impurity. A fountain of grace will be opened up from the one who is pierced. And John says, that's Jesus. Zechariah saw Jesus. He wasn't able to name him, but he saw his coming and he saw his piercing. Pierced in his body from which flows a fountain to cleanse us all from all sin. And John was there. 
the only male disciple present at the cross, and that in itself is another story. He says, I was there, I'm telling the truth, I'm the kind of person who tells the truth, I'm truly telling to you. It's like underline, true statement, capitals, red, bold, font 18, telling the truth. Because I was there and I saw it as the spear went in and marked the body. The blood and the water flowed out. And the blood that flows out is a reference, of course, to Isaiah. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us the peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And the water that flows out is a reference to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, the promise of the gathering of God's people from all the nations. I'll take you out of the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries. I'll bring you back to your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols and I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Or as Psalm 87 says, as they make music, they will sing, all my fountains are in you. The new creation Christ, risen from the dead, is marked forever with his sufferings. They have become part of his glory. Now, we do not have to die for the sins of the world. Good news, people. You do not have to die for the sins of the world. That job has already been accomplished. But we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ. And I want you to note, just as we go by this morning, that your sufferings, whatever they are, and however they come to you, born by means of faith and trust in Christ, will not just mark you now as they do in pain and wounding and grief and loss in this life. They will mark you forever in the new creation, reframed and resurrected in the glory of God. We will see your hands and your side. We will see that pain born through faithfulness and obedience will be restated and refashioned and raised in glory. Now tomorrow is the third anniversary of our third daughter's death, aged 29. And that has marked us forever, and our whole family forever, with pain and grief and loss. But this helps me. This helps me as we approach that day. That that pain will be, that the mark of that pain is not just for now, but will be reframed in all of life to come. So let's just have a little bit of reflection, shall we? I want you just on your own right now, just bring your sufferings to Christ. We haven't even started today's message. <laughs> we're, just, we're just noting this as we go by. But this is important. 
ask God to help you in your sufferings. Ask him to keep you faithful all the way to glory, whatever they are and however they've come to you and however they mark you. Ask Christ to help you. Lord, come and help us. Come and sustain us and lift us and encourage us and strengthen us. Come and keep our gaze fixed upon you. Thank you for the way that you ran your race so faithfully and diligently and obediently. And we pray help us to run after you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's press on with our scripture then. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he, he said, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus came, Jesus stood, Jesus spoke. And then, how do you know you've got the church? Because Jesus sent. As the Father sent me, he says, so I send you. So you think, well, how did the Father send the Son? How did the Father send the Son into the world out of love for the world? Well, there's a good answer to that in the, in the Gospel of John. The first thing that Jesus does in the Gospel of John is to invite two people round his house for a late lunch and a long chat. Who likes doing stuff like that? Yo, this is good stuff to be doing, inviting people around your house for a late lunch and a long chat. That is the first thing that happens in the gospel. And in a nice kind of parallelism, the last thing that the resurrected Jesus does in the gospel is prepare a beach barbecue for his friends and then take one, well, two of them. He took one of them and another one tagged along for a very important chat as they walk along the beach. That's our Jesus. John 1 verse 35, the next day John again was, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples and he watched Jesus walk by. He exclaimed, look, that's the Lamb of God. Look, look, you know, when you point people out on the street, look, look, that's the Lamb of God going by. And the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus, which is quite a comical situation, isn't it? You've got Jesus walking by, he's just minding his own business, perhaps going to Tesco's to buy some fish and like the two guys that's the Lamb of God yes and we're, we're just follow the Lamb of God and you know not unnaturally Jesus turns and he says well what are you doing <laughs> like like you would if two guys suddenly started following you slightly surreptitiously he says what are you doing he said uh, 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 where do you live <laughs> where, where, where do you live and he said oh come and see 
Come and see, he invites them around. Now this is Middle East, this is Middle Eastern culture. It's impossible to be invited around to a Middle Eastern person's house without being fed. I don't know if you've ever been, if you've got Iranian friends or Afghan friends or, 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 or Arabic friends, you can't go around their house without being fed. It's totally impossible. They won't allow it. Doors are locked until you've had a three-course meal. So there they are. He's cooking them a nice sort of lentil curry or whatever it is. And they spend the rest of the day with him. How was Jesus sent into the world that God loves to call people to become his friends? To call people to become his friends, to invite people to know him, to love him, to follow him and to be with him. How do you know if you've got church? Well, you've got church when people invite others round to meet not just them, but to meet with Jesus. A few weeks ago, I was standing in the coffee area at City Church, just chatting to a friend of mine. And uh, I just looked, looked across the room, and a couple came in the door. And you know, you know people that come into church, and they're a little bit shocked. They had the rabbit in headlights look. Because if you've come to church, and you're expecting old ladies' pews and an organ, you come into City Church, it's like a disturbing experience. <laughs> So I said to Gail, my friend, Gail, conversation over. I'm sorry, cheerio, I'm going to go and talk to that couple over there. Went up to them and said, hello, would you like a coffee? And he looked at me and he says, I don't feel ready for a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> we kept on chatting and then, that was good, it was all good. And then after a while, I said, do you feel ready for a coffee now? And he said, actually, I do. So off... <laughs> Off we go, we get the coffee, we drink the coffee, he comes and he sits with us, we have the church service. And, and at the end of that, I said to him, which is what, I just have one question I ask people in this kind of situation. Just one simple question. Do you fancy meeting up to talk more about Jesus? That's all. And if they say, no, not really, then that's fine, isn't it? Go home for lunch. He says, yes. Well, out come, you get the phone and say, okay, uh, Here's my number. Ring me now so I've got your number and then I can WhatsApp you. We can arrange the meeting. I've been meeting with that guy now with another friend. Uh, We've met about five times now. We meet every fortnight. We go around his house. He cooks us the meal. That's really cool. He does the meal for us. And we're talking about Jesus. And of course, all kinds of stuff comes up, doesn't it? All kinds of really, really interesting stuff comes up but that's church how was jesus sent into the world invite people around his house for a late lunch and a long chat that's it now the second thing that jesus does in the gospel of john is he meets the needs of people through the power of god that's the second thing he does and we see that in this wonderful story of the wedding at cana you know he's at a wedding having a lovely time for some reason that we never get to find out, the, ri- the wine runs out, and that's a huge shame, a huge shame in the village. Sometimes we, are, we don't understand the importance of this. That family and that couple will forever be the family that didn't have enough wine at the wedding. And that's a massive social event in the village. They will have to live with that shame for the rest of their life. You know, some things are worse than death because you have to live with them. And this is one of those. 
And so Jesus' mum very carefully says, um, they've no more wine. Now, in English, that just seems like an incidental comment. Again, Middle Eastern culture, that is her saying, for God's sake, help them! <laughs> but she's not allowed to say that because she's a woman and he's a man. It's all got to be done very, very carefully. And in the Middle Eastern culture, you never go to the middle point that you're trying to make. You always go right round it. Like, make it, you make all the points right on the edge and everyone has to guess what's in the middle. <laughs> That's what's going on. Now, Jesus responds very, very strangely to start with, but he does when that's all done, and we'll come back to that in a minute, when that's all done, he does step into the needs of people and he meets them by the power of God. And that couple will forever be remembered as the couple who had the most amazing wedding ever. And the master at the banquet gives the credit to the bridegroom. He goes kind of mad. He says, you know, I've just been to thousands and hundreds of these weddings. Mm, another one, another wedding, another wedding, another wedding. Oh, at normal weddings, people bring out the best wine first. Then when everyone's had a bit too much, they bring out the really cheap, nasty stuff. I hate this. He said, you're the exact opposite. This is the best wedding I've ever been to. You bring out the best wine when we've all had loads anyway. And it's just amazing. Thank you. <laughs> total transformation and when you study these stories and there are four of them in the gospel of john jesus acts in a very definite manner throughout them all to start with he's very reluctant he's very reluctant and when his mum comes and says they've no more wine he says to a woman i don't know if you ever tried that at home (laughs) (laughs) tea's ready woman (laughs) wouldn't go down well in our house uh Woman, and it's an Aramaic expression, what is this to me and to you? It basically means, go away and stop bothering me. He acts very reluctantly, he pushes back. But, you know, his mum steps further forward. His mum isn't deflected by that, but steps forward into it. And that's when he changes tack and he starts to do something about it. You see, the reason Jesus doesn't want to respond so quickly is he doesn't want to respond just to human need. Human need is absolutely everywhere. You could go, we don't even have to go outside this room. Just look around this room. Human need is everywhere. Jesus doesn't respond directly to human need. He wants to respond to God. And he creates a little time to allow that process to happen well in all of the four stories where this happens. Because how do you know you've got church? Because we are the people who step towards human need as God directs us and dependent on God to help us. We're not just an extension of the social services. We're bringing in the kingdom of God. And, you know, when you step into the space of asking God to help you meet human need, you're also stepping into the space of suffering. There's, there's no other way of handling it. And that comes up even in this first story of the wedding of Cana. Je- the other thing Jesus says to his mom is this, he says, my hour has not yet come. You think, well, what's all that got to do with anything? And you have to read all the way through John's Gospel to find out what he means. And he, but his hour is his crucifixion. And you have to then come back to, to John 2 and the wedding at Cana and think, what does the crucifixion of Jesus that no one knows about at the time got anything to do with catering at a wedding? And the answer is, 
Jesus knows that when he starts to step into these spaces of meeting human need by the power of God, he's stepping into human suffering as well. And in fact, he's stepping into his own suffering. And when you get to the fourth story, the story of Lazarus, this is what happens. You know, when Jesus saw her weeping, this is Martha who's lost, this is Mary who's lost her brother. He saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Brilliant verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Now, if you think of Jesus as a sort of wonder worker who just fixes stuff, you can't understand that verse. It doesn't make any sense. But actually, Jesus is acting in total vulnerability and trust in God. He's not a magician. He knows he needs God to work for anything to happen. He knows he's going to step into a space, very, very vulnerable space in human terms, that allows God to work. He's going to take a step into that space and call Lazarus out. But he's not doing it as a magician, a fix-it person. He does it out of compassion and empathy and complete identification with human suffering. That is a very different way of approaching human need, is it not? Not, I'm a professional, I sort of sort you out from a distance. But no, I'm going to step into your suffering and become part of your suffering, and let's see what God can do. How do you know you've got church? Because we step into the space of asking God to meet human need a space of vulnerability, a space of suffering. Third thing that Jesus does in the gospel is speak truth to power. I love all these things about Jesus. Uh, and uh, this is another one. I really love this about Jesus. Okay? He's not afraid to speak truth to power. This is the story we looked at a bit yesterday. John chapter 2, making a whip of cords. <laughs> That's just the, Jesus knows how to make whips. He makes a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned the tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. (laughs) Take them out of here. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Speaking truth to power. That's what Jesus was sent into the world by the Father who loves the world. Now, speaking truth for power, it might mean standing up for justice for those seeking asylum. It might be speaking up against the plague of sexual violence that's coming against women in our country. It may mean acting to stop climate change or the destruction of the Amazon rainforest. There are many places you can look at power and see the need to speak to power. But you know, the issues are always much bigger than us, are they not? The issue of sexual violence against women is much, much bigger than one person. The issue of of deforestation is much, much bigger than one person. It was exactly the same for Jesus. The corruption in the temple was a massive issue that no one man could deal with. And what you see Jesus doing in all of these stories, and there are four of them in the Gospel of John, is acting prophetically. He acts, he, he makes a whip. Like, is that going to stop the corruption in the temple? Well, it's, 
it's brilliant for an hour or two, but it's, it's a prophetic action more than it is an actual solution. Do you see what I'm saying? There is a difference. It's pointing in the right direction, but it's not going to get us massively far. But it's still worth doing. And Jesus does this in all the stories. He, he acts prophetically. He does a sign. He makes a whip. He rides a donkey. He sends a man carrying a mat into the city on the Sabbath. There's a huge hoo-ha. And uh, he, he's basically saying to everyone, I am standing up for the things that are right by doing these things. But he's also saying, at the same time, only God can solve this problem. Because this is bigger even than me. Only God can solve this problem. How do you know you've got church? When we stand up for what is right, and we do that in a way that brings us back to God and says, only you, Lord, can solve the problem, really. We're going to move it in the right direction. We're going to speak to power. But we're not going to pretend that we can sort it all out. We need you, Lord. That's the third thing then. How do you know you've got church? Because you can hear truth being spoken to power. Fourth thing that Jesus does in the gospel is engage in difficult worldview arguments with people who see things very differently, but he does it with extraordinary effectiveness and grace. And John the author is fascinated by this. There are seven of these stories in the Gospel of John. The first one is Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi, you know, it makes a good beginning this, isn't it? We know you're a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Sounds good, doesn't it? He's got quite a few questions stacked up behind that opening little speech. But Jesus cuts him off. Boom! Doesn't even let him get to the speech. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How about that, Nicodemus? Put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. And he's all over the place. He's just gone. Uh, 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 How can someone be born again when they're old? I mean, it's pathetic, really, isn't it? Uh, He's just made that up on the spot. It's It's a useless argument, Nicodemus replied. Surely they can't, you know, it's like ridicule and it's not working. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. You know, worldview arguments are always very difficult, aren't they? There's no meeting of minds. You're not arguing rationally with the other person. You're not really talking about the data or the facts. You're, you're arguing about the way we look at the facts. That's the problem with worldview arguments. We all look at the evidence through a worldview. There's no such thing as a value-free observation. The way I look at things shapes the conclusions I draw from those things. That's how life works. You know, for example, if I'm an atheist, a modern atheist like Richard Dawkins, I look at evolutionary biology, I conclude that genetic mutation, natural selection and time allow all biological life to emerge and therefore I conclude, and he does this all the time on Radio 4 and BBC 2, there's no creator then. Mutations and time and natural selection obviously prove it without question. 
Does it? <laughs> Does it really? Because if I'm a Christian or even just a theist of some kind, I can be equally sympathetic and even convinced of evolutionary biology. But what I conclude, because of the way I look at the world is, I look at that data set and I think, what an awesome God. What an awesome God to have set up a system that brought the whole of complexity of life into being in such an amazing way. You see, the, the data's not really under discussion. The data set's the same in both cases. What's at stake is how we look at the data. And when you're having a worldview argument with somebody, there is literally no meeting of minds, which is why these arguments on Radio 4 and BBC 2 go absolutely nowhere, because there's nowhere for them to go. And Jesus rises up in the middle of Judaism. And let's remember that first century Judaism isn't just one thing. There's lots of competing voices. Jesus rises up in the middle of that. Quite a confusing religious turmoil going on. And Jesus doesn't want to lose an ounce of Jewish scripture, Jewish history, and Jewish theology. But he wants to take all of that. He wants to take his entire Bible and their entire heritage and he wants to reframe it with himself in the middle. And he wants to say, do you know what? When Isaiah was peering into the distance and prophesying what God was going to do, do you know who he was really looking at? He was looking at me. I mean, it's a phenomenal thing to say. You know, when Hosea married that, you know, woman in a really difficult situation and promised to be faithful to her who was he really looking at he was looking at me it's an amazing thing so he wants to take the entire bible and restate it with himself in the middle and this causes huge conflict that is a worldview argument if ever i saw one and what Jesus does, and there are seven of these stories, he does the same thing each time. He takes what they believe in. He takes Isaiah and Hosea. And in fact, he takes two things. He takes Ezekiel and the story of the Exodus. He takes both of them, and he, which they believe in. They accept those things. And he says, he, do you know what? They're about me. You know this shepherd, the shepherd that was going to come? I'm the good shepherd. You know this water that was going to be passed? Uh, so we could get through. That's going to happen through me, so you can cross over into life in a new land. He takes Ezekiel and the story of the Exodus, and he restates it with himself in the middle. These stories never resolve at the time, but what they do is they set the scene for the time when the Greco-Roman worldview would fall over under the weight of its own stupidity, and a Christian worldview would emerge on the, in the world for the first time which has lasted until I was born. It's only just falling over now. Amazing. You know, because we all live in the world, you live in the world, you work with people in the world, you live next door to people in the world, your, your family may have a completely different worldview to you. How do you know you've got church when you see people engaging in worldview arguments with grace and respect but also effectiveness. And you can learn all that from Jesus. So, 
How do you know we've got church that's sent into the world by a loving God? You find a people who invite others into friendship with Jesus. You find a people who step towards human need and into human suffering. You find a people who will speak truth to power and you will find a people who will challenge the worldviews of their day but with effectiveness and with respect. So, how are you doing? Let's have a discussion, shall we? I want you to just get into little groups, twos and threes. How do you live out those four things? Okay. Which one perhaps is the strongest for you? How have you been sent into the world? How's this working out for you? And how does your church embody these things? And how might you step into this some more? Everyone clear on that? Off you go then. The four things again. I should have put a slide up, shouldn't I? Inviting people to become friends of Jesus. Stepping towards human need, but into human suffering. Speaking truth to power, and engaging in worldview arguments with grace and effectiveness. You got them? Well done. Brilliant, well done. Right, let's come back together again. I do realise that you could talk about that for probably the rest of the day. (laughs) But, you know, we're covering a lot of ground as quick as we can. Why don't you just hold out your hands as if receiving a gift? And let's pause and pray. Father, here we are. Send us. Send me. Send us. Send us into the world you love to love it in the way that Jesus loved. In his name we pray. Amen. So we've talked about two really interesting things. We've talked about suffering and their eternal value and we've talked about reaching the world with the love of God. So you'll be very pleased to hear the next sentence in our little story. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive! (laughs) Receive the Holy Spirit! Now who knows, after talking about suffering and reaching the world with the love of God, that they need to receive the Holy Spirit. Who knows that? think oh yeah no we can do the whole stuffing thing it's fine it's easy you know like come on bring it on who knows that we can reach the world with the love of God just by ourselves no no no. and that's why this next sentence is there when he'd said this he breathed on them which in itself is an intriguing thing and said to them receive the Holy Spirit and that word breathed takes us to two places in the Old Testament. It takes us first all the way back to Genesis 2, to the first creation of the first person. Genesis 2 verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man, or the Hadam. And there's a joke here in Hebrew. He forms a Hadam. 
Okay. Now that's what it's called. Just the, the, the something. The, the mud man. The Hadam. From the dust of the ground. Hadama. And the, the, those two words, man and dust, are like one little uh, Hebrew thing apart from each other. It's a pun. Ha, 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 ha. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. See, this, this Hadam is made from mud, and he eventually acquires a name. He's made from mud, he becomes a Haman or a Hadam, and he eventually gets the name Adam. Ha ha ha, ha ha ha, ha ha ha, double pun. And what. John is saying to us is that this moment in Jerusalem isn't just a new creation moment for Jesus raised from the dead into a new creation body that will never decay. It's a new creation moment for the whole church. Jesus breathes on them. Jesus does Genesis 2 again. He breathes up their nose, the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to... I'm not going to fulfill that one. Okay. You just have to imagine that one. Okay. He's taking that creation story and he's saying, by the Spirit I'm making you a new person. You are going to become a new creation person. Now, they are still in their existing creation bodies, aren't they? That's... That's the tension of implicit in being a Christian. I'm a new creation being. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, look, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. It's exactly the same thing. He's saying Paul and John are much, much closer together than you would ever imagine. The new creation has begun in you now. And not just in you, but in you all. The Holy Spirit's been breathed into you. Who's had that, that experience of God coming and bringing new life where there was just mud and death and sin and selfishness? You've had that. New creation person has begun. Yes, in an existing creation body. But I am a new creation man made that by the breath of the Spirit. I'm still alive in a muddy old body. And this is the tension that Paul examines in much greater depth in Romans 8. If you want a longer, more theological explanation of this, just read the whole of Romans 8. But that's one of the Old Testament stories. New creation comes by the Spirit. The other story of breathing is the story in Ezekiel. And it's a resurrection story, Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me, brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. And he said to me, mortal. That's the way God talks to people, isn't it? Mortal. (laughs) Just making a point there. Mortal. (laughs) can these bones live now Ezekiel's known God long enough to answer like this I answered oh Lord God you know (laughs) 
very, very sensible. And he said to me, Prof, if God ever asks you a question, for goodness sake, don't answer. <laughs> or you'll be in trouble. That's another story. Um, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I'll cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I'll lay sinews on you, cause flesh to come upon you. I'll cover your skin and I'll put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. It's a resurrection story. And in Orthodox Judaism in the first century, they saw this story as happening at the end of time. And Jesus brings it forward a little bit. And he breathes Ezekiel's breath. He prophesies Ezekiel's prophecy. He says, okay, you dry people of God, lying around like a load of dead bones. He says, come to life. And they stood up, a vast army. And those two stories are brought together in this one moment. From creation, new creation, all the way through to resurrection. Just three things I want to say before we pray for the Holy Spirit to come. Number one, the work of the Spirit is both personal and all the people. The work of the Spirit in the life of the church is personal. God comes personally to you. But God also comes to us all together. This is an altogether experience, isn't it? Jesus didn't sort of take him off on one side, you know, come, come, you come with me and we'll have a little prayer time over here. We'll just, you know, you just, you carry on eating or whatever you're doing and we'll have a little, oh, he doesn't do that. It is personal to every person, but it's also corporate at the same time. That's the work in the Spirit of the church. You've got to hold those two together. The Spirit coming to me, but it's not just to me. The Spirit's coming to us together. Second thing you see from these, this story here, the Spirit comes to create and to empower. The Spirit comes to create. New creation starts in our lives, but also empowerment comes to be a vast army to reach the world with the love of God. The work of the Spirit is to create in your inner life the likeness of Christ that is going on, that we become ever more like Christ as new creation people that we are. But the work of the Spirit is also to empower you and to raise you up to be a vast army that can bring the love of God to Yorkshire and the nations of the world. Both are happening at the same time. Now, after I'd been a Christian uh, just about a year, I went away on a weekend not too dissimilar to this. You know, the sleeping arrangements were <laughs> lacking. And uh, it was February, and it was, it was freezing cold, and there was no central heating. It was a Catholic place. They didn't believe in that sort of thing. And there were three messages, one on the Father, one on the Son, one on the Holy Spirit. And at the end, there was a time of prayer. And they prayed 
we prayed for a few people to receive more of the Spirit. At the time, I felt absolutely nothing. I felt nothing spiritually, nothing emotionally, nothing physically. I put that down to being freezing cold. I couldn't, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even feel my toes, let alone <laughs> the inner workings of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, when I got home and warmed up a little bit, <laughs> and this is not an exaggeration, Within a few hours, it felt like I'd been plugged into the mains and liquid electric love was flowing through my veins. That's what it felt like. <laughs> and my hair sort of stood up slightly. <laughs> I did have hair then. And if you look at the pictures of my student rail card <laughs> through three successive years, you, 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 it's you might not think it's the same person. Inner transformation by the power of the Spirit bringing new creation life so that we can be like Christ. But do you know what happened within the following year? Within one year. It wasn't just that I'd felt like plugged into the mains. Within one year, the Christian Union asked me to organize a mission to the university. I was organizing some massive missions to the university helped and abetted by a certain Heather Shires. <laughs> who I refused to go out with even though we kind of liked each other because we couldn't let romance interfere with mission <laughs> that's the kind of people we were <laughs> power comes and life inner transformation comes both come at the same time from the same spirit third thing I want to say is this, it's from the beginning to the end. The work of the Spirit is from the beginning to the end. The work of the Spirit begins at the very beginning of your Christian life. The very creation of your faith is the work of the Holy Spirit. The breath of the Spirit brings you into new creation life. But the work of the Spirit doesn't stop there. I think, oh, that's done now. No, the work of the Spirit goes from creation all the way through to resurrection. Who here is resurrected? Just checking. <laughs> no one. Who's here? Who here has been newly created? Yes, all of you. The work of the Spirit starts here, but it goes all the way through to when you're resurrected. So has the work of the Spirit finished in your life yet? Yeah. No. Well done. Brilliant. <laughs> Sorry to make the point so laboriously. You need to prophesy Ezekiel's prophesy. Come breath of God into these dry bones that they may live and rise up and be a vast army. We need more power in the church. Not our own power, not our own ego, not our own control. We need more of God working in us. Now there has been a teaching about the Spirit that's tried to separate the work of the Spirit. That there's a work of the Spirit that brings people to faith, and that's called sort of being born again by the Spirit. And then there's another work of the Spirit that empowers you. And that's often been called baptism in the Spirit. A kind of second work of the Spirit. Now, there's two big problems with that kind of teaching. Number one is it creates a second class of Christian. So you get a kind of a Christian who's started out, but hasn't yet had the power. <laughs> you think, and the people who've had the power, think, you need to come and have the power. 
second class of Christian doesn't exist in Scripture. Paul says in Romans 8, you're either in the Spirit, in Christ, or you're in the flesh. There isn't anything in between. And that's the other big problem with this teaching. It doesn't work biblically and theologically. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is a problem. But there we have it. John 20 says, the breath of God is needed in your life from the very beginning of your Christian life to the very end of your Christian life. So don't divide it off into different bits. Sorry. (laughs) Receive and go on receiving. And the the Greek tense there is aorist. Continuous, continuous. Who here needs more of the Spirit of God? Amen. There's this wonderful partnership. It's the breath of Jesus. Jesus initiates, Jesus does it. But there is also our response. He says, receive Take it in. Receive me. Welcome me. Open your heart to me. One of the best metaphors, I think, is put the sail up on your boat. Put the sail up. You know, when we think about filling, if you think of yourself as a container, it doesn't really work, does it? God fills me like a container. How could that possibly ever happen? (laughs) It's like God is a little bit bigger than my little container best way of thinking about it is fill, put your sail up and let the wind fill. Because the wind then is bigger than the boat and the wind is directing and empowering the boat. Filling the boat. So let's have a little time of prayer, shall we? Thank God, you see. Thank God for that. Um, Daniel's going to come. He's going to play. Let's just have a time of waiting. I just want you to ask God to fill you afresh. I want to ask God to breathe the breath of God on you. I want you to ask God to come. Unless you just sit there. Yeah, go for it, Daniel. Just ask God. Ask Jesus. Put yourself into this story. Gather together, brought together by Jesus. This, this huge commission echoing in your ears, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. This amazing revelation that the sufferings have gone into glory. And with that, or after saying that, he breathed on them, said, receive, receive the Holy Spirit. Lord, come to me. Lord, come to me. Let your breath empower me. Let your life invigorate me. 
your very being in the Spirit created me. Come on us, Lord. 